Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Jenny Coleman. She is a senior lecturer and director of academic programs in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Massey University. She's here to talk about her new book, Polly Plum, A Firm and Earnest Woman's Advocate, Mary Ann Coakley, 1836-1885. It's published by Otago University Press in 2017. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jason. Well, it's great to have you on. So, Jenny, how did you discover and become interested in, in this fascinating figure, Polly Plum? Well, I first read about her when I was doing my doctoral studies, which is way back in the early 1990s. I was reading a thesis on a social portrait of Auckland in the early 1870s, and here was this woman, Polly Plum, who appeared in the newspapers at the time. I was absolutely fascinated with her and decided to incorporate her in my PhD as one of the early advocates of women's rights in New Zealand. And so this uh, book is a biography of Polly Plum, who was who the... Um you know, kind of the the, the name uh, that Mary Ann Coakley used um, in, in some of her writings. The biography tells the story of one of New Zealand's earliest feminists. Why was she so long forgotten? I think a lot of her um, activism was basically through her newspaper journalism and her public lectures. So it was published in the newspapers, um, but as a as an entity, she left Auckland after some years and then seemed to disappear from the face of the public. So by the time she died, she was relatively obscure. And that, I think, with not being able to access the sources in the newspapers easily, um, she just disappeared from view. So let's talk a little bit about um, about who she was. How did the, the name Polly Plum come about? Oh, there's several stories about how that name came about. Um, she said that uh, it was when she was doing newspaper journalism, at the time the newspaper proprietor was um, was Vogel, uh, Julius Vogel, who was an important um, member of parliament in New Zealand, very influential. Um, he was proprietor at the time and she was um, working for him. And he suggested that she use the name because it had a, a nice kind of ring to it. I think that's the official version. Mm-hmm. So... Before we get into, um, you know, the story of her life, just generally, you know, you mentioned that, that she'd been forgotten, that the end of her life, she kind of disappeared. What did people think of her during her lifetime, though, in the 19th century? Um, some people thought she was fabulous, but most people thought she was um, a bit of a rabble rouser. Um, she was very um, hard hitting with what she said. Um, she was she was a polite person, but she got more and more kind of radical, I guess, more confident, um, particularly as she was writing in the newspapers under a pen name. So she had a, a degree of anonymity. But then when she took to the public stage and lectures, um, people were more divided. Some thought that um, she was just um, a member of the shrieking sisterhood was the phrase they used to use at the time, but others thought she was a breath of fresh air. 
Let's talk a little bit about her early life. Uh, where did she grow up and, and in what circumstances? And, and were those the type of circumstances that, you know, one would predict would, would um, you know, turn someone into kind of a, a radical and, and feminist? Mm. She grew up in Clerkenwell in London. She was born in 1836 um, to a middle-class family. Her father was a builder. He owned a carpentry business, and at one stage he employed up to 22 um, people, so it was a, a reasonably substantial business, and it was at a time where there was a lot of building happening in London. So, a, you know, very good time in history to um, to have a, a building business. He was also very strongly of the opinion that girls should be educated, and um, and Marianne's mother um, was French. Um, she was well educated. We don't know very much about her apart from that. But um, she had, uh, Marianne had a reasonably comfortable upbringing. And I think um, that in itself wouldn't lend to someone becoming radical. But things changed quite considerably in her adult life and in her married life. And, and that is uh, the turning point, I think, for her. Marianne comes to New Zealand, uh, as the book kind of opens with, um, and, and what happens to kind of shift her mind to become, um, you know, more interested in advocacy, and, and what motivated her? Well, as a young child, she was very observant, and she does recount some childhood memories in growing up where she noticed that um, the way things were working, particularly for the daughters and families, wasn't really very fair. So these were in the back of her mind. For her, she came over to New Zealand with her brother, her younger brother. Uh, Marianne was aged 21, but he didn't survive the journey over. It, it would seem that he may have gambled away the savings that the two of them brought with them. So when she arrived in New Zealand, um, she didn't have a male chaperone and she didn't have any money. Um, and so she very quickly had to turn on her own um, wits and her strengths, which were in uh, teaching, and um, and basically make a living for herself. So immediately she was here. She was thrown into being both an independent woman as well as being someone who um, didn't have the backup, even if she uh, wanted it, um, of someone to support her. So things started to change from that point. Marianne was interested in, in a range of issues. Uh, two of the, the kind of main ones I, I thought that were fascinating were um, girls' education, which, as you mentioned, was important uh, to her dad and to her growing up, and also working on behalf of women's uh, prisoners. So wh what kind of tact did she take in both of those um, advocacy fields? Um, at the time, it was um, quite common for there to be a lot of um, discussion about girls' education and what was needed. Of course, there were two schools of thought generally. One was the conservative one that um, girls didn't really need a lot of education because they were uh, going to be wives and mothers. Um, but others who wanted changes used that as an argument to increase um, girls' education. So she was of the opinion that, yes, girls should be educated, um, but beyond the roles of wives and mothers, because although she agreed that that was women's primary responsibility and role, um, there were circumstances where women had to um, look after themselves and take responsibility for themselves or to look after their families. So, um, so that prefigured some of the things that happened to her in her life as well. 
Um, she already knew that women should be independent, but um, later on, as her um, as her marriage unfolded, she was the one who ended up having to be the breadwinner. So she was very aware that even with the best laid plans, there were a lot of women whose lives did not turn out ideally. And so that underpinned her views on girls' education, but also her work with female prisoners. A lot of the women who were in prison were there um, because they had been deserted by their husbands um, and they had no money to fall back on. Um, they uh, maybe had um, resorted to prostitution. Um, and basically, after they'd had a prison sentence, they were often discriminated against and found it very difficult to get employment. So she was very much, her work with female prisoners was around um, educating them and providing some really practical schemes for them to uh, get employment when they were discharged from prison. Marianne's actions and interests were, uh, you know, truly international in scope. Um, you know, she, she, most of it uh, was in New Zealand, but but she did, um, uh, you know, venture abroad. Did that kind of international outlook hurt or, or help her cause? Well, it's an interesting question because um, she was connected with a number of international uh, women's movements in terms of uh, the vigilance societies, both in um, England and back oh, back in England and and in America as well. And that kept her in touch with some of the leading lights within the women's movement more generally, and up to date with. Um, the writings and the activism, and particularly around uh, legislation. In terms of her own kind of international profile, um, it was really uh, the time that she spent in Melbourne, which was about a um, about a 16-month period from October 1874 through to January 1876. Um, she was uh, erroneously described then as being from America, um, of course she wasn't and she'd never been to America um, but part of that was because opponents of women's rights often used to refer to Yankee notions and so they attributed all the radical elements of the women's movement to America more so than they did to um, to Britain. So in terms of her international profile she was she was kind of a, accused of having views from overseas, and the bad ones, so to speak, were from America. Um, in fact, she was she was very well read from a from a range of areas. So it kind of worked to her disadvantage in some respects, but to her advantage personally because she was well connected and knew that even though she often presented as a lone voice, she had a whole movement of women behind her in other countries. Mm-hmm. You know, she she did have a rough life uh, in many ways. Uh, you mentioned uh, her, her brother uh, dying on the uh, boat coming over. Um, she herself died at 49. Um, you know, does that play into why she um, was forgotten for, for so long? Oh, possibly. I think it's more of it is actually the timing of when she was alive and when she was active, because um, certainly in New Zealand, the the women's movement proper um, didn't really kick off until the mid 1880s, and that was with the establishment of the Women's Christian Temperance Union in New Zealand, and that provided an opportunity for women to actually group together and have the shared sense of being women and a shared sense of not just identity but of 
um, coming to an understanding of how society treated women as a group differently. And so prior to that, um, there are individual people who may themselves have been connected with other aspects of the women's movement, but who um, generally, they might appear in our history books and in the Dictionary of New Zealand Biography, but very little is known about their connections. I want to ask you about writing a biography. You know, when you chose to do it, how did you use the, the story of this one person to tell a larger story uh, about New Zealand and, and about um, the history of the women's movement and, and um, women's history more broadly? Mm. Well, it, I, I've written a couple of biographies now, and I, I absolutely love it as a, as, a, um, as a piece of research because it does bring all of those different elements in together. To, to understand anyone's life, whether it's Marianne Coakley or, or anyone's biography, we really do need to understand the times that they were living in and the different um, aspects of what was happening that shaped parts of their lives. So um, as I was writing, um, I basically, anything that I was doing, I would look up where she was living, for example, and what the situation was like then. Did they have, you know, did they have street lighting? Did they have, um, you know, gas lighting? What, you know, some of those kinds of things. Because for this particular individual, she's someone who um, struggled financially all her life, but was a very keen writer. And um, so that means, and she had uh, children to look after, and she worked full time. So, so her writing would have probably been done in the evenings, and probably by candlelight, and that causes a real strain on the body. So, you know, you need to actually think through the realities of what it must have been like for people, and to sort of put yourself in their steps, or in their shoes, but also in the time period, and understand what society was like at the time. To to kind of get a sense of of who they are and what their lives were like. Mm -hmm. You say uh, that you've often wondered whether Marianne uh, had been a contemporary of yours, whether you would have been political allies or perhaps mm. even friends. Um, mm. how, how do you come down on that question in the end? Um, I think we wouldn't have been in the same groups. <laughs> I think probably um, she would have been a little bit more conservative, although I do generally describe myself as relatively conservative but um, but to others I'm not um, I think she probably would have been the head of the National Council of Women um, which is a very very influential um, women's group and um, very very active but active often in the things that we think of as conservative they do the they do the bread and butter work of, of submissions to Parliament on various pieces of legislation. They're not generally the ones who are organising rallies and protest marches. So um, so I think uh, Marianne would have been um, in the National Council of Women Brigade rather than in, say, the more um, radical groups uh, protesting against, um, you know, male abuse and all the kind of public protests we see these days. Jenny, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. Uh, that's Jenny Coleman from Massey University. Her new book is Polly Plum, A Firm and Earnest Woman's Advocate, Mary Ann Coakley, 1836 to 1885. It's published by Otago University Press in 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>